Choosing a partner is a really big deal. Like it's a huge, mm -hmm. huge decision, but also not to get paralyzed trying for perfection. If you're interested in marrying, find out what it means to be healthy, emotionally, mm -hmm. psychologically, spiritually. Really, I don't mean come to some point of perfection where it has to be put off so long because you're still working on yourself. Tune into how you view yourself because that, that issue of significance is gonna come into play there. I think there's a laundry list in dating where you go, I wanna have these like <laughs> 25 things. And you don't narrow it down because you care less, but you narrow it down to things that matter most. Spending time with the Lord and not making some sort of like wish list of like, this is, I want someone with green eyes and you know, curly blonde hair, but asking God, what would you put on my list? There is a lot in scripture about what it means to be a person of character. Do some character studies in scripture read through the Proverbs, you know, like, what is it? What would you look for in a good friend? I think my boyfriend is so cute and wonderful and like has a great smile and all of that. And I'm very attracted to him, but I think that um, the things that initially attracted me to him were the things that God had already spoken to me. You need enough time to be able to see a person over time in a variety of contexts. Going on certain mission trips, problem solving and doing things together. And that to me, it was able, it was cool to see even before we were dating, just how each other kind of acts in a different place. Uh, to see her in stressful situations, to see her deal with people. How that person interacts with their family, looking at how they interact with their friends, how they interact with you, how they interact with strangers. Is there a consistency among all those things in the person that you're wanting to, to build a life with? Yeah. Because that, that will tell you a lot about who they are, what their character is like. When we're in the church setting, I guess, you kind of assume that everybody in the church is a safe person. That is being naive. And you're setting yourself up for disappointment. I'm not saying that be doubtful and assume the worst of people in church. What I'm saying is people in church, men and women, they're still human, even when in church. They're Christians, but with flaws and with issues and baggage. Like, it's important to get to know the person as they are versus the image of this man or woman being a Christian. Do not ignore red flags. None of us are our best self all the time. So there are episodic kinds of behavioral things, and there are chronic behavioral things. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, there are some things that are disappointing, and then there are some that can be destructive. Dig there. What, what are destructive relationship patterns? I've been in situations of like really liking people who just do not love God and seeing the image of God in them and wanting to pull them along with me. And it can be really, um, it just isn't life-giving. Even having a really physical relationship can like start to like hinder our ability to see people clearly. Conflict's inevitable. Mm -hmm. So be with somebody who you can navigate conflict with. Yeah. Because yeah. you're gonna have to. Yes. Disagreements are inevitable and and marriage is only going to make disagreements more and then having kids is just gonna make it even more. And so it's like if you can't find someone that you're you can fight well with, that's something I would be intentionally like aware of and looking for. 
this person that you're interested in, how healthy is their friend group? Because their friends will determine so much of who they become. And, and I've used the phrase before, but it's like, you're, you're, show me your friends and I'll show you your future in the same way. If it's in the dating relationship, especially, it's like, you want to know that that person has people in their life that they can, they can turn to, because can't, we can't be reliant on each other in every situation. Um, people that knew us and loved us and supported us around us mm -hmm. to speak into our lives and to say, yeah, this is what we see in you, this is what we see in her. People who you trust tell you the truth. That to me is, I think, one of the biggest gifts in this is that we're not doing this alone and we have people that are wanting to continue to be in our lives and encourage us and pray for us. It seems to me that when you meet somebody that you kind of like, you determine from that first moment, is this somebody I can marry? And I would kind of warn against that. I would say build friendships or go on group dates. Those helped me learn how to interact with guys without being in a, like, am I gonna marry you type setting. I think with everything in a respectful way to be able to ask, you know, how do you feel about marriage? Just in general, not putting that pressure of just because we're dating means that we're gonna get married. I think as it progresses in that way, it's healthy to have those conversations. It wasn't, how many kids do you want? Because mm -hmm. I want this many. Right. It was, what do you think about kids in general? And how do you mm -hmm. see, like, it, it wasn't a, about us, it was mm -hmm. about marriage and mm -hmm. about life. At the end of the day, I think what I can consolidate into is just having this open-handedness of saying, God, thank you so much for this good gift of this person who I get to grow with, and it's a delight to do life with. But if you, Lord, choose to take it out, I'm gonna trust you that you know what you're doing and you're gonna put something else there that is good or even better. Not just for me, but for her as well. All right, good evening, church. If you've got a Bible with you right now, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three is where we're gonna be tonight as we, con as we continue our relationship series. Uh, we spoke in the first week about singleness. Last week, we kind of talked about the path toward marriage and, and what that looks like. Uh, and this week, we are gonna talk about dating. Uh, we're gonna talk about dating. We're gonna talk about really practically, really um, specifically. Uh, and in order to get the set, kind of set the stage for the room tonight, uh, I wanna kind of take an informal poll of the room. So go ahead and make some noise if I'm speaking about you right now. Um, if you are married in the room, make some noise. No. <laughs> That's exactly what we all anticipated. And to those of you who are married and joining us here on Thursdays, God bless you. Join this very, very small club. All right, next question. If you are currently, if you are currently in a relationship, dating or engaged, make some noise. All right, all right, all right. Bigger crowd here, very excited. Glad, glad you're here, glad you're with us. All right, next crowd, final crowd. Those of you who are single and available. Wow. Welcome, welcome. So, so we got people all across the board, um, and, and yet we always recognize that this is sort of informally the singles ministry of Calvary. Um, and, 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 and yet here, here's what I've learned. Whether I'm hanging out with a married couple or, or whether I'm talking to someone who, who's looking someday to be in a relationship or whether I'm talking to a couple who is currently in a relationship and they're dating one another, um, if you've been around church for long enough, you'll hear the phrase, and I've heard it endlessly, you've probably heard it too, people will say something like, I want a Christ-centered relationship. I want a Christ-centered relationship. You may say it differently. I want Jesus in the middle of our relationship. I want God to be a part of our relationship. I want us to be focused on God. Whatever your language is, 
People identify, if they're followers of Jesus, that somehow they want their relationship to be distinctly Christian. And I believe for any of you who are followers of Jesus in the room, which I don't assume everyone is, but for those of you who are, I just want to identify, I think this is probably your desire. That when you start dating someone, when you get engaged to them, when you get married, you want to have a Christ-centered relationship. But here's the problem. I think for a lot of you, there's not really a sentence after that sentence. Uh, like, I think for a lot of you, what there is is there like a desire to have a Christ-centered relationship, and then you get into a relationship with a Christian, and here's where things go wrong. There is an assumption that he's a Christian, and I'm a Christian, or she's a Christian, and I'm a Christian, Therefore, this is a Christ-centered relationship. Therefore, being a Christ-centered couple should be easy. And see, that's where you make your mistake. The assumption that relationships should be easy is an assumption you should never make. Because two sinners coming together, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together, will never be easy. And so what really quickly happens is we kind of don't know how to have a Christ-centered relationship. And so we go off the worst possible gauge we possibly have, and that is emotion and intuition. And so we just kind of think like, they're a Christian, I'm a Christian, and here's how I feel right now. And so we go off emotion. But what I want to offer you tonight is something entirely different. I want to offer you a perspective on how to date in a Christ-centered way. I want to offer you a perspective, uh, an instruction manual on how to date in a Christ-centered way that's not an idea, it's not a theory, but it is practical and it is specific. Let me put it to you this way tonight. I want to talk to you about a dating playbook, Okay. I grew up playing football, and all playing football, you would have playbooks every single year, and you would spend the summer studying the playbook to understand the plays that you're running, because the idea isn't just go vaguely try to score a touchdown. The idea is that with the playbook, we're all on the same page. We're all moving in the same direction. So tonight, I'm going to show you this text out of Colossians 3, and here's the two challenges I want to put out there. If you're in a relationship, if that's you tonight, let let this passage be your playbook. Let it be the thing you talk about tonight after the service or this weekend with your girlfriend or with your boyfriend or with your fiance. Let this passage be the playbook that you use to go back to over and over again to say, what should we be doing as a couple? These things listed in Colossians 3. And let me say this, if you are not in a relationship tonight, would you let this passage be your presupposition? Like in other words, you're not going to get into a relationship with someone who won't do the things we're going to talk about tonight? Like if you meet someone and they're super cute and super charming and super funny and they've got all the good things you would want, but you don't think they would actually be a Colossians 3 type of boyfriend or Colossians 3 type of girlfriend, would you just say, I'm going to go ahead and pass on that person? Not because they're bad, not because they're wicked, not because you don't like them, but because your presupposition is that what we're going to talk about tonight is the playbook for how your relationships are going to work. See, I'll just say this from the top. The Bible says absolutely nothing about dating. Dating is something that is at the best 200 years old. But romance and relationships and how to relate to other human beings and how Christians should distinctly treat one another, oh, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And that's what we're going to dive into tonight. May tonight be your dating playbook as you go forward. So again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. It says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. So it begins then with a statement, since then, and then it says, you have been raised with Christ. This is one of these moments we pick up in the middle of a book. Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about one person. They're all about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, and who he is for the believer. So this entire two chapters is talking about Jesus. And then the third chapter begins with the word since. Since you've been raised with Christ, 
Like in other words, because you're saved, because you're a Christian, because God already lives inside of your bones through the Holy Spirit, therefore go do the following things. So this means for me at least two things tonight. Here's the first. Um, I I believe there are some of you here tonight or or listening online with us who are not believers. You're not a Christian. You're just kind of checking this out. You're not even sure if you believe in God or the God of the Bible, but you're here tonight or listening for some reason. And, And here's what I want you to know. You're off the hook tonight. Uh, tonight, there's going to be all of these commands that are given, and these commands are given not to everyone, but specifically to those who have been raised with Christ. But, like, listen, if you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, the last thing I would want you to think in the world is that you're supposed to do a bunch of good things so that God will love you. No, the whole point of Christian faith is that God loves you before you do anything. God loves you before your obedience. God loves you before you obey the commands of the Bible. See, that's the whole point of the Christian faith. So if you're not a believer, I don't want you to think this is the things I have to do to earn God's love. But if you are a believer, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out this dating playbook. I'm going to lay out this romance playbook. And here's what I want you to know. This romance playbook only works if both people in the couple have been raised with Christ. Like, let me say it a little more bluntly. If you are a follower of Jesus, I do not believe you can be in a healthy, functioning, God-honoring relationship with someone who isn't. I believe, as a Christian, you should not date, marry, be engaged to, or be deeply romantically involved with someone who is not also a believer. This is most famously stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll see these words right here. It It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Maybe if you grew up in church, you've actually heard a different phrase out of this text that doesn't come from the newer versions of the Bible, but comes from an older version of the Bible. In the same exact verse, in the King James Version, it says this way, uh, very King Jamesy of it. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, what this is commanding you to do as a believer is not to be yoked together with someone who is not a believer. If you're like, I have no idea what yoked means. I think it means like a lot of muscle. What does that mean? Here's what it means in the scripture. Here's a picture. This is a picture of two oxen and they are yoked together. There's this wooden bar that goes across and it goes around each of their neck. And these are two oxen who are equally yoked. These oxen are pulling something across that's plowing a field, and because they're both the same height, they're both going in the same direction, they're able to move together. But could you imagine if one of these oxen was this tall, or if the other one was going that way and one was going this way? So so here's the ultimate problem. The reason the Bible is going to give us this vision of being equally yoked, meaning dating people who are also following after Jesus, is because if you're not equally yoked, if there's a huge differential here, If there's a huge differential in faith, even if he's cute, even if she's nice, even if you've known each other forever, even if they're a good person, there are going to be problems. Listen, the Bible does not demand a lot out of you when it comes to who you choose to marry. I actually want to say that again in case you missed that. The Bible is not going to demand a lot out of you when it comes to who you choose to marry. There is a compatibility test in the Bible, though. We talk endlessly about compatibility and like, are we compatible? The Bible only has one compatibility test and it's this. The only compatibility test in the Bible is Christian testimony. That's it. Like the Bible leaves the rest up to you. You can marry someone of a different race, of someone of different eye colors, different hair color, someone taller, someone shorter, someone bigger, someone smaller, someone smarter, someone dumber, someone richer, someone poorer. You can do whatever you want. But there's one thing that the Bible tells you to do. And that is to marry someone who is also a believer. And if we're going to marry someone who's also a believer, I believe that means we've got to date people who are also believers. 
even if they're cute, even if she's kind, even if you like them, even if you think they have good moral character, this isn't a judgment on everyone who isn't a Christian. It's just a reality. Like all of the literature shows this, like the, of the most foremost important things that it takes for a marriage to work and tick. Number two is you having the same religious foundation, the same basis. And so again, this is what I'm going to plead with you tonight. If you're in a relationship with someone who's not a believer, you find yourself just kind of being confronted by this right now. Listen, I'm not telling you just like go home, break up with them tonight, break their heart, make it all messy. I'm just saying to let the scriptures sit heavy on you tonight and to think deeply about this reality. Like, listen, I want you to know that there's no way you can be on the same page if you're not reading the same book. And I think the issue for so many is they think we can be on the same page with someone else but not be reading the same book. And again, this isn't judgment. This isn't, no, non-believers, they're bad. Non-Christians are bad. That's not that at all. That's not what this church is all about. But the Bible is clear that if you want to be heading the same direction, you've got to be following the same individual. It goes on this way. It goes on to tell us this. Uh, in the back half of verse 1, it says, Then we're going to set our hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So initially, you'll see here that we are called to set our hearts on something, which is the idea that in the Christian faith, the idea isn't that you just intellectually believe something, but rather your heart craves and desires something. Like the whole point is that your heart would crave and desire Jesus. Like you ever talk to a coffee drinker in the morning? Uh, and I don't mean someone who like enjoys occasionally a cup of coffee. I mean someone who's like crazy about coffee. They never say, I want coffee, right? What do they say? I need coffee, right? Like it's not like I'd, I'd enjoy a cup of coffee. It's like right now I need coffee or I'm not going to be pleasant. That's the coffee drinker, right? And, and I think the scriptures is calling us to be the same way with Jesus. It's not just we think about Jesus or like, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm way into him. It's like, I need Jesus. I crave Jesus. I want Jesus. This is what it means to set our hearts on things above. Like, it's not just that we love God. It's not just that we desire to sometimes think about God. It's that our hearts are wrapped around who God is. It says, set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. And then it says, set your mind on things above. It's going to contrast that with earthly things. Because ultimately, the greatest enemy to your heart being passionate about who God is, is the distractions of this earth. Like we talked a few weeks ago when we talked about Solomon, if you were here during our Cautionary Tales series, about idolatry. And here's what we said about idolatry. We said that idolatry is when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing, right? When you take a good thing in this world and you make it the ultimate thing in your life, rather than God, it will ultimately become a bad thing. It will destroy that thing and it will crush you. And I want to put it to you this way tonight, especially if you are presently in a relationship. When you make a relationship the ultimate thing, it does become a bad thing. And here's what it is. I think almost everyone here has seen that in someone else, right? Like everyone here has seen that in someone else where you see someone's in a relationship and it is wrapped up their entire life. They don't talk to anyone else. They don't hang out with anyone else. All the time they're with their significant other and their whole world has become wrapped around that and they've forsaken everything else. Here's what you know. You know that's toxic. You see that in others. And yet it's almost impossible to see in ourselves. And so who do we want to be? We want to be the type of people. What's a distinctly Christian relationship? This distinctly Christian relationship whether it is dating, engaged, or marriage, is the relationship that is able to say, I love you and I care about you, but not more than I care about my God. Like, I look at my wife and I go, I love you, but I don't love you more than God. I treasure you, but I don't treasure you more than God. And here's why that's actually romantic and not kind of mean. 
Because if I expect my wife to sit in the place of God, I will be endlessly disappointed and I will crush her with my expectations. And if you expect your boyfriend or your girlfriend to satisfy your soul in the way only God can, you will crush your relationship and you will end up disappointed, angry, bitter, and resentful at the other person when you don't realize the issue is actually inside of you. So ultimately, when you make a relationship, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the ultimate thing, it's going to become a bad thing. It goes on this way in verse 3. It says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And I love this phrase in verse 4 here when it says, Christ Jesus, who is your life. And I think about that phrase all the time. I think about that phrase when I think about Christians who, who kind of show up at church once in a while or, or they're in a relationship with someone else and it kind of seems like Jesus is like a side dish to them. Like I think for some people, they treat Jesus the same way that me as a coffee drinker treats cream in my coffee. So if you offer me a cup of coffee nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100, I'll say I'll have it black. But once in a while, I like to add a splash of cream. Just a little bit, not a ton, just a little bit for some taste, kind of enjoy it every time I go, okay, that's nice. I added a splash of cream. I think some people treat their lives or their relationships like this. They have romance, but they have a splash of Jesus. Just a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of church. Sometimes they pray before meals if they're with other Christians because it's awkward not to, right? There's that tension. Like, that's what they do. That they kind of treat their relationship like it's like romance is the main dish and there's a splash of Jesus in there. And I want to ask you this question tonight, especially if you're in a relationship. Has your relationship become romance with a splash of Jesus? Like in other words, Jesus is this add-on, this other thing, this thing you throw in there from time to time. When the contrasting idea here in chapter 3 and verse 4 is that Christ is your life. And I think to have a distinctly Christian relationship, to have a distinctly Christian marriage, to have a distinctly Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance relationship, Jesus is going to have to become more than just a splash you add in. He's going to have to become the defining feature of your life. It goes on this way in, in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And I love this scripture because it begins with the assumption of two things. Number one is that you have an earthly nature. And anytime the New Testament talks about your earthly nature, that is not the good thing, okay? That's not like earthy granola. Like, it's not that, okay? The earthly nature is like all the wicked, twisted, terrible things about you that you know when you're honest with yourself exist. The Bible assumes two things. Number one, you have it. Like, in other words, you are not as spectacular as you think you are. And if you want proof of that, get into a relationship with another human being, and they will eventually tell you. Not, not, not in the first three months. In the first three months, you're perfect, okay? But after three months, or three years, or three decades, you get into a relationship with someone, and you quickly realize that how perfect and awesome and wonderful and spotless you thought you were isn't actually the case. See, the Bible assumes you have an earthly nature, and it also assumes that if you want to deal with that earthly nature, it doesn't happen by you growing older. It happens by you putting it to death. Like, it doesn't happen automatically. You have to intentionally do it. It's going to go on to say it this way. We're going to put to death, therefore, what belongs to our earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways that you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of such things as these. Anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to assume you've got issues. And here's what I want you to do. 
Before you get into a new relationship, you who are single, assume you have issues that need to be dealt with. Those of you who are in a relationship and sometimes you and your boyfriend fight, assume it's not because he's an idiot and you're perfect. Assume it's because you have issues too. You have an earthly nature. There are these problems that exist within us and if we're not intentional to deal with them, they will wreck every romantic relationship we are ever in. Let me say that again in case you missed that. If you are not intentional to deal with your own sin, it will wreck every romantic relationship you ever get in, even if you end up marrying that person. It will destroy it. So what do you, what are you called to do even before you get into a relationship? Deal with these little things in your life. It's like this. Um, just, just a while ago, remember it was a couple months back, maybe in February, there was like a crazy windstorm here, which was like bizarre. The wind was like 100 miles an hour. It was whipping through everything. And in my backyard, right above our grass, we have these lights that sit up on this wall. And, and the wind was so strong, it actually knocked a few of those lights off, off of the wall onto the grass and glass shattered everywhere. And so the glass is shattered everywhere. And I come out when the storm is all over and I see glass all throughout the grass. And that's a problem for me because I got two little babies who run around there barefoot all the time. And so I got to do something now. Here's what I've got to do. I can't just kind of look at it and be like, well, don't go there, kids, because that's not going to work, right? What do I have to do? I have to get down on the ground and I have to pick up the big chunks because some of them are big chunks like this big and it could slice your hand open. But here's the problem. If I just get the big obvious pieces, my kids are going to run past it and they're still going to step on the little small parts, right? So it's not enough for me to just get the obvious pieces. I actually have to go into the blades of grass and pick up every little piece of grass. Why? One, so I don't get hurt. So I don't step on it and hurt myself. But even more importantly, why am I digging through the grass and into the dirt and getting filthy and trying to get all of these little bits of glass up? It's because I don't want my kids to step on it and end up wounding someone I love. And listen to me. If you want to be prepared to be in a romantic relationship, you've got to get your fingers dirty in the grime and the muck of your own life and pull out these little parts of your earthly nature that are going to destroy you if you're not careful. Like if you think you can just be you and never change and just be, someone should love me for me, like that is not the biblical vision of marriage. It's not the biblical vision of romance. You've got to be the person who's picking these things out of your life. It names so many of them. We won't get into all of them. It's a sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Next week, we're going to talk about that for the whole sermon. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about sexual sin. We're going to talk about purity and purity culture and all the ways it goes wrong and all the ways we can walk in God's plan for our life. But let me tell you something. The word for sexual immorality in the New Testament is the word porneia. It's the word we get pornography from. And ultimately what the New Testament is going to tell us is that porneia destroys people. And so listen, those little bits of sexual immorality or impurity or or lust or evil desires in your life, they will wound you or worse, they'll wound the people you love. It goes on to say greed, which is idolatry. And if you don't think greed can show up in your relationship, you've never really thought through what it looks like when a couple is all about them and doesn't exist to bless the world. There's anger, rage, and malice. If I can just get personal here for a second, most of your anger and rage and malice is triggered by things that happened to you long before you were thinking about boys and girls. It was happened to you when you were a child. And if you want to be a healthy, functioning person in an adult romantic relationship, you have got to deal with your childhood wounds and you've got to address them. I'm not saying you have to overcome them entirely. I'm just saying if you don't recognize the wounds you had in childhood that caused you to be angry and resentful and bitter about the world, you will ultimately take that on on the person that you are claiming to love. It's a non-negotiable. 
You've got to deal with those father wounds. You've got to deal with your insecurities from childhood. You've got to deal with those things or it will unleash hell, literal hell on the person who you are dating. And then finally, it says slander and filthy language from your lips. Listen, to clean up your lips, to stop speaking in such a way that you wouldn't speak in front of your girlfriend's parents, that you wouldn't speak in front of your boyfriend's uh, parents, that you wouldn't do that, that you would pick those things out. Again, windstorm happens, glass all, over the, glass all over the grass in my backyard, and I'm picking up the tiniest shards because I don't want to wound myself, and I don't want the people I love most to be wounded. And may this be the image for some of you as you head toward the next relationship that you're in, especially if you're single, that you would start picking those little shards of grass, uh, glass off the grass, that you would get your fingers dirty and be willing to do the dirty, hard work that prepares you to be in a relationship where you're not going to wound the person you love. It goes on this way in the text. It's going to tell us this. In verse 13, it says, bear with one another. So, so the New Testament has this phrase um, where it says that we are called to, uh, can we go on to the next verse here, verse 13? I don't know if that's up there. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, that we are called to bear with one another. That's what it says in verse 13. And bear with one another is the New Testament's way of saying, deal with the fact that sometimes people are annoying. Deal with the fact that sometimes people are going to bother you. Deal with the fact that sometimes people are going to let you down. Sometimes, listen, ladies, hear me on this. Sometimes the guy you love is going to say something insensitive. He's going to do it. Sometimes he's going to say something that doesn't mean to, and it doesn't make that right. But what the scriptures are going to call us to do is bear with the fact that sometimes people are insensitive. Like, fellas, listen, sometimes your girlfriend's going to show up late. Sometimes she's going to show up late to the thing you knew she was supposed to be on time to, and she knew you bear with it. You put up with it. Your boyfriend who doesn't call you back, your girlfriend who responded emotionally and snaps back at you, whatever that thing is, you bear with it. You deal with it. And for some of you, you're so trigger happy. Like you have these expectations of the other individuals. You have expectations of the people you date that if you're dating them, they must be perfect. And here's the question I want to ask you tonight. Why is it you expect the sinner you're dating to be perfect? Like, why would you possibly expect this sinner that you are dating and that you are both sinners trying to follow Jesus together, why would you expect them to be perfect? Uh, I want you to know that, that part of you being a mature, healthy, Christian adult in a romantic relationship is learning how to bear with the fact that the other person is also a human like you are. And I want to invite you into that, to not expect perfection because the only perfect one is Jesus and you don't get to date him. But then let me put it this way. Sometimes we bear with one another. Sometimes we just deal with the fact that the other person's human. Listen, my wife deals with the fact that sometimes I'm frustrating and annoying and stubborn and I deal with the same things in her. But sometimes it goes beyond dealing with something and it goes a little deeper into wounding. Like it goes beyond, this is kind of annoying and it goes deeper into wounding. And that's what the next part of the playbook is going to tell us in this. It says, and forgiving one another, or forgive one another. If you have grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Like, again, there are going to be times someone wounds you or hurts you. There's going to be times someone does something to you, and it's kind of like frivolous and annoying. But then there's going to be times where it really sticks and where you really get wounded, where he does something or says something that really leaves a mark, where she says something or does something that really causes you to live in some pain. And the only escape hatch to the pain in your life, don't miss this, the only escape hatch is the gift of forgiveness. You've got two choices. When someone has wounded you, when someone has hurt you, you only have two choices. Live forever bitter, angry, and twisted up about what they did to you, 
or forgive them. Some people say, oh, forgiveness is way too hard for me. Forgiving is so difficult. And I agree. But forgiving is the second most difficult thing you could possibly do. The most difficult thing you could possibly do is spend the rest of your life twisted up and bitter and owned by the thing that person did to you. Forgiving is hard. But forgiving is the only escape hatch in relationships. Listen, if you're going to be in a relationship with another human being, they're going to wound you. And unless you want to live bitter and resentful and angry and looking for revenge on every wound that happens to you, you're going to have to learn the art of forgiving. Now, now let me clarify. Every time I talk about forgiving, I try to make sure I say this, that forgiving is not these four things. Number one, forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting. Sometimes when people are like, forgive and forget. Just don't worry about it. That's not forgiving. Forgiving is remembering what happened to you and choosing to go through this process anyway. Forgiving is not forgetting about what happened. Forgiving is not excusing bad behavior. If you're being abused, if you're being hurt, if you're being pushed around, if you're being lied about, if you're in this toxic setting, forgiveness is not saying, okay, well, I'm supposed to forgive, so I'll put up with abuse. You should never put up with abuse. Can I say that again in case someone online or someone in this room needs to hear it? You should never put up with abuse. You are blood-bought by Jesus Christ. You are more valuable than that. You should never put up with it. Forgiving is not excusing or shying away from bad behavior, saying it's not that big of a deal. Listen, forgiving is say, not saying that it didn't hurt you. Sometimes forgiving kind of feels like, well, I overreacted and it's okay. No, no, no. Forgiving is saying this hurt me. It's unacceptable behavior. I remember it. And then finally, I want to say this. Forgiving is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people to happen. I need you to know you can forgive someone even if you never tell them. You can forgive someone even if they never know. See, here's what forgiving is. Forgiving, I want to boil it down to this sentence, and it's so much more, but I want to give you this sentence. It's the three R's, okay? Here's the three R's of forgiving. This, if, I, if I'm going, what is the end goal? What is forgiveness? It's this. Forgiveness is this. To forgive is to relinquish the right to get revenge on the person who hurt you. Because when someone hurts you, the most natural thing is, I will hurt them back double. And to forgive is to let go of this right, this need you have to get revenge on the person who hurts you but rather to allow that vengeance to be the Lord's because God's not gonna let anything slide in this life, in this world, in this universe. And if you are going to be in a relationship with someone else, I promise at some point they will hurt you and they will hurt you deep enough that you need to forgive. And if you want a relationship that lasts, you must, you must, you must learn to forgive. It goes on this way in verse 14. It says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members as one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So in this paragraph, what we've just seen described is this template, this model for what life on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis should look like for a Christian And I'm arguing tonight this is what it should look like for a Christian couple who wants to have Christ at the center. I want to pour out, pull out four different things from this. And I tried to put these creatively or think of some like cool way to say it. I have no cool way to say this. I just want to tell you straightforwardly what I see in this text. Four things. Number one, couples should pray together regularly. I don't just mean you pray before a meal or if you're in church, you like reach over and grab their hand. That's nice. But I mean, you should sit down and say, what can we pray about right now? When you hear about something terrible that happened in this world, stop and pray for it. When someone's with you and they say, hey, we're really aching right now, say, hey, can we pray for you right now? Couples should lay hands on people and pray over them together. 
If you are a couple and you are not regularly praying together, that is an indication that something is wrong, that something is off. I'm not saying you're bad or wicked or insufficient. I'm just saying prayer is something we should be doing regularly, not just on our own, but together. Here's the second one. Couples should read scripture together regularly. How do you read scripture together? You sit at a table and one person reads and the other listens. And then you say, what did you see in the text? And you say some things and they say some things. And if that's a four minute process or a 10 minute process, that's okay. It doesn't have to be technical. It doesn't have to be a Bible study. It doesn't have to be brand new conclusions. But listen to me, if the only words being spoken in your relationship are your words and not God's words, there's a problem here. There's a problem. Something's missing. Listen, we should pray together. We should read scripture together. Listen, couples should attend church together and engage in the life of the church. Some of you are here tonight and you're couples together. This is so healthy for you to come to church together, to listen to a sermon, to go out to dinner after, to talk about a sermon, to be a part of the life of the church, not just to show up, but to serve together. Honestly, the couples that end up making it nine out of 10 times are finding some way to use their gifts and serve together. And so if you want to figure out a way to serve together, that is just going to supercharge your relationship with one another and your relationship with Christ. And then finally, um, couples should share withholdings of gratitude um, regularly. So um, the, the end of the part says that, that we would be grateful together. Uh, and, and withholdings is, is a kind of interesting word that you might not have heard, but let me talk to you about that tonight. So my wife and I, from time to time, do withholdings. And we'll say, let's do some withholdings. And here's what that means. Throughout the course of the day, for my wife and I, there are little moments where like, she'll do something nice for me. Uh, like she'll, she'll text and just say, hey, I love you. Or, or, or she'll kind of make some dinner for me and have that ready for me. Or, or she'll clean a dish or she'll help out somewhere. There's just, she'll do something that just says I love you to me. And what happens over the course of the day is you're moving so quickly that you often forget to slow down and say thank you for that thing. And, and so what we'll do from time to time, we'll just say, hey, tonight we're gonna do some withholdings and we'll just bring up the things from the past week. Hey, I noticed you did this. I'm really grateful when you do this. Every time you say this, it makes me feel loved and supported. Every time you do that, it is a, just an intentional time of sharing these withholdings, these great grateful things in our heart that we've actually withheld from the one we love. Like in other words, sharing what you're grateful for in the other person supercharges your relationship. It gives you this grounding of, okay, I know what they're grateful for in me, and I've articulated what I'm grateful for in them. Here's how the text continues, and this is actually the final verse we're going to look at tonight. It says this, it says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I want to dial in on this phrase, whatever you do. And part of this is that whatever we do, we're supposed to, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like in other words, this is the picture of a Christ-centered relationship. This is the picture of a marriage or a dating or a fiance relationship where God is at the middle. But in order to accomplish that, we have to actually know whether we're dating or married or engaged, we have to actually understand where we're going and what the point of all of this is. Uh, like, let me put it to you this way tonight. I'm going to invite uh, Jacob Wood up on stage right now. Jacob, where are you at? Jacob, anyone? Ja uh, Jacob Wood! Jacob Wood, everyone. Now, Jacob, now, come on. You got to hurry. You got to hustle a little bit. Like, I, I've got a ball in my hand. You got you to run here. Now, we talked tonight about Colossians chapter 3, and I said this is the dating playbook, and so I thought I'd give you a little football picture at the end here. Uh, Jacob, you played football in high school, right? Uh, illustrious career of football. And if you don't know Jacob, Jacob is our worship leader here and leads us week in and week out as we praise the Lord. Uh, but tonight, I want to invite him to show us his athletic prowess. So, Jacob, here's the ball. Uh, and I want to, he caught it. That was good. That was good. Um, 
Now, Jacob, I'm going to give you an instruction in a minute on who to throw it to. So I want you to kind of warm up and be prepared to throw the ball. I want you to take the ball right now, and I want you to throw the ball to her. No, not her. Just throw it to her. No, you got to throw it to her. Oh, throw, it to, throw, it, throw it to the her who's on that side. No, the other side. No, you got to throw it to her. Right here? Don't throw it to them. Do not throw it to them. No, not, not her. I want, it, I want you to throw it to her. <laughs> that, is, that is true. And the fellows rejoice. And I go, yay! Right. All right, Jacob, how about this? Throw the ball back to me. You go have a seat. Give it up for Jacob. Now, why did I do that? Because I want to illustrate a point. Uh, I told Jacob to throw it to her, and, and he's right. There's a lot of hers all across this room. And ladies, we love you, and we're glad you're here. Um, there are a lot of hers all across this room. So, so if I just say to Jacob, I want you to throw it to her, that, that's actually not very helpful to him, right? But because here's what I want to illustrate tonight, and this is the principle I want you to, to think about as we end. Um, if, if Jacob doesn't know the goal, like he doesn't know who to throw it to, he doesn't know where to aim. So if I say throw it to her, he could like be like, okay, I'm going this way and try to aim it this way. But he might actually supposed to be aiming this way and go this way. Or maybe he's supposed to go way up top there and he's not really sure where to aim. If you don't know the goal, you'll never know where to aim. And here's my fear. My fear for so many couples, even Christian couples, is that they don't know the goal of a relationship. And we said last week, like the ultimate thing you're trying to aim toward, you're trying to aim toward marriage. But then the problem is even you get to marriage and then you go, now what? Oh, I guess we have babies. Okay, that's what we do. Now what? And here's the problem. So many Christians don't know what to do with their relationship. They don't know where to aim their efforts because they don't know the goal. And if Colossians 3.17 is going to say, whatever you do, whatever you say and do, do it all to the glory of Jesus Christ, then here's what it needs to be. Like, again, if you don't know the goal, you won't know where to aim. And I want to tell you tonight that the goal of the relationship is to make you more like Jesus. That's what you're aiming at. That's the goal. So when you know that the goal for me and my girlfriend, me and my boyfriend, is that we would be in a relationship that makes us more like Jesus, then you understand what the point is. Then you understand why you're supposed to bear with one another and forgive one another and read scripture together and pray together. Why you're supposed to do all of this together because the point of a relationship isn't to make you happy. Because I have news for you. If you are looking for another human being to make you happy, they won't. They will eventually fail you. They will eventually let you down. And if your aim in a relationship is, I'm going to be with this person until they make me happy, you'll just keep aiming at different people because everyone will eventually let you down. But if your aim in a relationship is, I'm going to aim toward becoming more like Jesus and helping this person in front of me become more like Jesus, you've got a project that will make it through thick and thin, good times and in bad, sickness and in health, richer or poorer. You've got an aim that will last for all of eternity as you become more like Christ. See, I want Colossians 3 to be your playbook. I want you to look back to this text over and over and over again as a couple. Because the goal of the relationship isn't for you to be happy. It isn't for you to satisfy yourself. It isn't status. It isn't anything other than you becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And that's what I want to invite you to aim at. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for tonight. And I want to thank you for the opportunity in this room to think um, about your word Thanks for Colossians 3. Thanks for how just direct and blunt and straightforward it is to us. 
Um, God, I pray for anyone tonight who's just been kind of caught sideways by something. Maybe I said something. Maybe your Holy Spirit's driving it into their heart. I just pray that no one would harden their heart tonight. I pray that no one would push you away. I pray that no one tonight um, would think that somehow they can do this thing called romance and relationship that you created without your guidance. God, help us to know that your word is sufficient. Help us to know that your word is true. Help us to be a type of people um, who date in a Christ-centered way, who honor each other in a Christ-centered way. Pray for the single men and women in this room who are just longing to be in that relationship. God, I pray you would be preparing them. Would you be picking out the little shards of glass in their life so that they can be prepared to be in a healthy romantic relationship. I pray for those who are engaged or dating right now, those who are together as a couple. God, I pray that their couple, their relationship would make each other more like Jesus. And God, as many of us in our life head toward marriage, I pray that we would become more like Jesus each and every day with our spouse. God, help us to be sanctified. Help us to want you more than anything else. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.